Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. My name is Jesse Vondracek. I'm here with Elliot. Hey, everybody. And Marilyn. Hey, what's up? And I am super excited for this episode because we are going to talk about triathloning. To kick things off, I have a question for each of you. Have you ever done an out-of-order triathlon or a, a different order race, if something like that, and how miserable was it? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You go. Yes. Yeah. I, I've done an aquathon where it was swim, run, swim, run. Um, yeah. It was terrible. I think it was, I want to say the swims were 400 yards and I think I swam over a minute slower on my second 400. So yeah, it was, I thought I was going to die, but I didn't, I'm still alive. Great job. Great job. Um, <laughs> Marilyn's scratching her head. So I'll jump in here and let her think for a second. I've done a super sprint triathlon, which was three times through a triathlon and Marilyn may have done that same event yeah, with I me. I remember, yeah. We went down the slide, the water right. slide started. That was awesome. And it, it seems super low-key until you go down the slide, and then you've got to swim against the current in the lazy river. And uh, Tyler Jordan had a lead on me, so I was trying to swim really fast. And by the third time, I was like not sure if I was going to make it through the water. Wait, was that race in Tucson? Yeah. That was probably one of the most fun races I have ever done in triathlon. I had a hoot that day. It was because everything went by so fast. It was just like such a short, you know, swim, bike, run over and over again. That was pretty cool. But I was always just a tiny bit concerned about like my calves cramping after the run when you jump back in the water. Right. <laughs> it was like, oh, God. Um, yeah. So, so the point of this question though, is that these are scenarios that we were definitely not quite prepared for, like doing a reverse triathlon. They've got a ton of those in New Mexico or something where it's not just swim, bike, run, because we've done that a lot. We've prepared for that. When you mix things up, like I've jumped in a duathlon before and getting on the bike after running is really hard. I think I lost like 50 Watts. I was like, where, where'd they go? I don't know, but they're not my legs anymore. Left them in your run shoes. I left them in my run shoes. That was silly. Um, so if we're say new to triathloning or haven't done it in a year because we've been busy pandemicking, <laughs> um, what do we need to remember so that we don't have that feeling of awful when we're putting all the sports together? So that's, that's kind of what we're going to talk about in general today as we go through the podcast to kick things off i'd say we work ourselves through the triathlon a lot of us have been pool swimming most triathlons are in open water so let's let's start there let's start in the open water what do we need to remember to have a great open water swim when we get back to competitive triathloning and not just training i just want to throw it out there i know we're going to get there but when you think about setting up a triathlon, you always think about setting up your transition before you walk down to the water. But for the sake of the pod, let's start at the water start. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, also one of the things we talked about is that like straight up wrap your head around triathlon, not being swim, bike, run, but it's a start line and a finish line as a sport. And what does that all entail? So, you know, we're starting at the swim, but you made a really fair point there, Elliot. 
we've got a transitions too. So there's more to this than just swim, bike, run. There's, you know, transitions and, and all the things that are really unique to our sport. You know, it's like, it's like nothing else. So triathletes tend to get caught up in comparing themselves to pure cyclists or pure runners or, you know, swimmers or even open water swimmers. But I think, um, you know, let's, let's just lay lay the law down there right from the start that it's a start line and a finish line. And we've got a series of skills that we got to do along the way, the fastest. So we start at the water, we start at the setup, but we start at the water for the most part. <laughs> so what, what recommendations would you have for people, let's say getting ready for their first open water swim in a long time? What, what skills should they be thinking about and maybe practicing in the pool or just thinking about before they, they jump into the water and have to actually swim, say in a wetsuit or swim in an open water environment? I think if we're going to go with the basics, can you make sure you, your goggles keep a seal and that they don't get foggy? And if you're outside, do you have tinted goggles and what direction is the sun? Um, those are all the baselines to then get to the first thing, which is, can you pick your head up and look where you're trying to swim and just sighting in the water and being comfortable. And depending on your level, you might come to a full stop and tread water and look. And let me tell you, if you're not that great of a swimmer, it is way easier to just stop, get your bearings and then start going again. Um, and I'm talking about a very, very beginning swimmer take your time because you're better off just swimming a short straight line than you are squiggling all over the place. And if you watch the really, really fast swimmers, if you're watching the Olympics or you're watching the front end of uh, Ironman Hawaii or something, you're going to notice the people leading those swims are sighting like at least every 10 strokes. And there's a reason because they're going really fast and they don't want to go longer than they have to. So I guess I'd start there. Yeah, I would start with the incorporating in your training. Um, it's probably been a long time since you've been in your wetsuit if you haven't been racing. So start maybe adding one day a week where you're you're wearing your wetsuit. I know that a lot of people don't like to wear the wetsuit in the pool because it's not great for it, but maybe you've got an old one you can can use as your second one or you know, you can make sure you wash it well afterwards. I think it's more important to get familiar with what that feels like again, once a week, you know, jump in that wetsuit, even if the water's a little warm and you can only manage your warm up in it and, and then have to take it off for your main set, that's fine. But I know the first time people put their wetsuit on a long time, they can find it claustrophobic or they even find, you know, their, their how the water feels and, and what the load is in their arms and shoulders feels a little different. Maybe even their body position feels a little different. So get familiar with that again. I would also start practicing in the pool, just you already touched on it, the sighting. So you start to become, you know, sometimes when we swim in the pool, it's easy to just switch off and you're not aware of your surroundings. You're just, you know, staring at the, at the black line going through the workout and you're, you're not comfortable with looking around a little bit and starting to introduce that navigation mind a little bit again, maybe in your warm up, you, you practice sighting one, once every three or four strokes on both sides, you know, timing with your breathing, those kinds of things. And, and just get familiar in your workouts with all the skills that are going to start, you know, start to put you in the open water in the race. Awesome. Yeah. I totally agree with, with all those things. And I would say w when I'm talking to athletes about sighting, one thing I really like to hammer home is that just picking your head up doesn't count as sighting. It's like when people do like the fake glance over their shoulder, when they're like driving, like you, you didn't see if there was a car there. You just like pretended to look same with sighting, right? You've got to actually be able to see something. So I like to have like 
a logo on a water bottle or a clock or something that I'm really trying to like focus on. So I'm saying, okay, like I saw those three colors or I saw that object so that I, I know that if I am actually trying to find my way, I'll be able to see it and not just like picking my head up because my coach told me to practice sighting. Agree. If I mean, it's, it's COVID times, so you're not going to do this, but maybe in five, six months, you will, or even three months. Um, if you can get into a big empty pool with no lanes and you set out a buoy, but if you had a coach there, one thing I know I used to do with the university of Montana team is we'd have a big group and I'd go to the far diagonal end of the pool and have two different color pull buoys and, or kickboards, I guess. And depending on which color I put up, you had to then see that color and that meant you went left or right. Right. And then you had, so you were like, you sure you knew you, you were going to see a dude holding a kickboard, but it was like, what kickboard am I holding? So you really had to get your head up and understand what was going on. And we had enough people in the water. Like inevitably, if you have like 20 people in the water, like three of them are going to go the wrong way every time. Um, and, and some of them are like, well, so-and-so is a good swimmer and they went left. So I just assumed, and it's like, that's your lesson. You can't assume the person in front of you is swimming the right way. Um, <laughs> and Jesse's mouthing to me, you know, like sometimes, you know, okay, maybe what if I always do. Okay. I'm, I'm just like crossing my fingers and hoping you're also usually swimming in the second pack of three or four packs in a professional race. So it's a little different. If you're, if, if honestly, if you're at any level of age group swimmer, my old roommate was an extremely fast 1500 meter swimmer, like had trials cuts in the 1500 meter swim. He could not swim straight to save his life. He was an extremely fast swimmer and he could not swim straight. So it, like, if you're in the amateur race, don't trust whose feet you're on. Um, just because they're fast, they may well be going fast in the wrong way. So take your time to sight. And I, I don't want to harp on sighting for too much longer, but I do want to say just practicing that and really thinking about trying to keep your hips up while you're sighting. So you don't have that big lag and speed because every time you have to reaccelerate is, um, it takes a lot more effort than just maintaining that speed. So trying to sight. And I also like to incorporate some sighting when people are trying to swim fairly fast, if they're a more advanced swimmer so that they can really try and maintain that momentum. I think we hammered sighting enough, um, and wetsuit wearing and in general, getting that, that, that feel for open water. I think that next part of the triathlon is before we get to the transition, we actually have to get out of the water. Right. And depending on the length of the swim, you've probably been horizontal for a while. And that change from going horizontal to vertical can cause some challenges. Um, everyone's laughing at me. <laughs> so I'm just thinking of the idea of somebody just walking through the swim and being perfectly ready for the bike. Cause you know, sure they had a bad swim, but they just walked the whole thing. Anyways, shallow water. I was going to ask actually, before you got to that, do you guys like, what, what do you think about trying to kick a little bit more just to get a little bit more blood flow in the last hundred meters or so? I I've always been like, eh, if that's not really your swim stroke, why do it? But then at the same time, it seems to help a little bit, but thoughts. Yeah. I think it's pretty person dependent. I think it depends on how much you naturally kick or don't kick. If your legs are just dragging for an hour, then yeah, you might want to move them and get some blood flow. Right. And, um, but yeah, I, I think it's definitely something worth experimenting with for anyone to try. And if it helps, it helps. And that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, one thing to address that's pretty unique to our sport, but I, I think more common than what is talked about is a lot of people, you know, we do swim training, we do bike training. 
Um, and the most common hiccup I see with people when they first get back to racing is, yeah, the stand-up part and getting that, you know, orientation and vertigo. But mostly I see a lot of people, they stand up and they kind of tie up a little bit, like their back or their glutes or hamstrings. When they, when they stand up and they start running to their bike or when they first get on their bike, I hear pretty commonly from a lot of athletes, man, my, my glutes and my back really, really tightened up and I couldn't really get going for a while. That is actually a pretty common problem in triathlon that, that we don't hear addressed a lot. You know, we, we talk a lot about, especially in cold water, you know, not feeling orientated or feeling a little bit dizzy and that takes practice or, you know, the phrase hurry slowly through transition, um, you know, making sure that you move quickly, but with, you know, intent. Getting, yeah. Getting your, your, we, we talk about that a lot and that's pretty common, but I think one area we could help people a bit here is how do you even prepare for that idea that when we stand up, because we don't do it in training, right? We stand up and we go to jump on our bikes. And for whatever reason, that transition from swim to bike at race intensity, I get notes from athletes all the time early in the season or just in a hole um, saying like, yeah, my hamstrings felt really, really tight. My back felt tight. My glutes felt tight. It took me the first 10, 20 kilometers to really get going and, and work that out before I could really start racing. So what are your guys' experience and thought on, on that with athletes? I mean, it's pretty unique to our sport. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I've, I've felt that myself and I've, I've heard a lot of athletes talk about that. And I think that it is, it is a tough thing to avoid because, you know, besides like doing a quick, like knee hug in the middle of the swim a few times, you're going to stay in that, that elongated position. That's going to kind of cause that whole posterior side of your body to, to tighten up a little bit. So I, ideally people can practice, right? If you can get a chance to go to open water and see what it's like to swim for an hour and see how your body feels so you can, you can really gauge what you might need to do, but that's, that's a tough one to solve. Elliot, yeah, do you have any, I, I even experienced myself. I used to, when I would race, you know, I would avoid the wetsuit strippers because the whole, you know, going from swimming for a long time and then hopping out of the water and then plopping down on the ground, it would send my whole glutes and hamstring into a massive cramp that, that I couldn't work out for an extended period of time. So, you know, I think there's little things that, like you say, if you get a chance to know how even just swimming at intensity for a long period of time, and then maybe even doing some sessions where you do swim, bike, swim, bike, and, and train the body to be able to handle that kind of, you know, swim intensity right into that bike motion. Um, Ellie, do you have some experience and ideas of training athletes through that? I think the biggest takeaway is uh, it's really hard with, with COVID, but you know, like again, actually another UM triathlon story is we would somewhat regularly as we were heading into races, we would probably do more swim bike bricks than bike run bricks and bike run bricks. Everyone talks about cause your legs are so tired, but like, it's actually, I think for almost anyone, it's harder to go from swimming to biking than it is from biking to running. You're just more tired when you start the run. So it like, it functionally is always going to be harder, but that's just the effect of the runs last, but the actual transition itself is like, in terms of like wrapping your head around it is definitely harder. And I, I, the only thing I would say is you just need to get out there and do it. And everyone's going to have a different thing tie up or a different sensation or a different amount of vertigo. And the one thing that helps every person 
um, is just to do it more and like to practice it, not in a race. So you're practicing it like with less anxiety and less panic and less like, um, you, you can take your time essentially. And I think that's one thing to keep in mind. Cause we're essentially, we're talking about coming out of the water, trying to find some sort of running stride and then coming into transition and, um, and then I guess go through T1. So did we want to talk specifically T1 right now? Sorry. I just, you reminded me of one thing I wanted to jump on with that is that yeah. I, I have done and, and like to have athletes do is that the swim run brick, I think that can be really useful. I mean, just to help get in frequency, but also just to know how your body feels off the swim. And I know it's not exactly the same as the swim bike, but it, it can be pretty time efficient to just do a 15 or 20 minute jog after a swim. And, and I think you can get a lot of those same feelings and know how your body is reacting to that standing up motion. So I think that's, that might, that's a slightly more time efficient way maybe to, to jump from one to the other. So how do you guys set up your T1? Uh, rubber bands on the shoes and bike on the rack. Is that <laughs> Do you, I mean, do you have it? I mean, uh, so I think one thing is if you're going to put rubber bands on your shoes, you better have practiced it more than 10 times. Um, I think that's fair to say. And I know for a lot of people, you're not allowed to do that, but I know the most important thing when you're coming for me is just like to know the lay of the land. And oftentimes you're in a huge transition area. And I think one of the best things you can do and, uh, my teammates used to make a ton of fun of me for it because I, the day before the race and the morning of the race, I like walk through transition in both directions, at least five times, just kind of like figuring everything out. Right. Cause you just have to know where everything is because when you're in there, um, I think you kind of mentioned it earlier, Maryland, it's, it's like, you have to be efficient. You don't have to be fast to be good at transitions. You have to be efficient and, and knowing the direction of where you're going is the easiest way. You know, if you have Google maps and it tells you the shortest point, you're going to get there a lot faster than if you just guess and then drive way faster, right? You need the shortest route. So just where is your bike? And then when you get there, do you have an order of operations for what you're doing? And so much of that depends on the race, but it's like, where's your nutrition? Are sunglasses in the equation? Do you know how to put on your helmet? Do you know how you're putting on your shoes? Do you know how you're getting on your bike? What does that entail? Where is the mountain line? Um, those are all the questions you have to ask yourself. And it sounds a little over the top, but like practicing, if you're going to spend hours and hours every week for months on end, <laughs> um, if you're going to spend all that time, you might as well spend an hour on your transitions. So, you know, that's what I would say when you're kind of getting into T1. Yeah, a really common mistake I see for beginners is not um, making sure that their bike is in the correct gear. So, you know, they'll ride their bike the day before and then they rack it and then maybe they finish their ride in like their big chain ring and, you know, somewhere halfway down the cog, cog set and they think, okay, you know, just rack and be ready to go. And I always remind athletes, and, and this is a good reminder if you haven't raced for a little while, is make sure that you know, like what you're just saying, Elliot, you know your your what your terrain is as soon as you leave transition and that you're in the correct gear to be able to go from a dead stop 
And, and if it's flat and fast, okay. If it's uphill, boy, you better want to know what gear you're in and you're in the right gear so that when your feet are wet and on top of your shoes, or maybe you're, you know, just getting going and you've got a little bit of that vertigo or something like that, that you're in a gear that you can get the bike going in a straight line up to speed really easily. So making sure that your bike's in the right gear when you rack it can be really, really helpful in your transition. Yeah, I think that I think having everything, all the decisions made before you get into T1. So the other thing I see is people putting out a lot of choices in transition. Like, I don't know what I'm going to want to wear. I might want some different food options. Like you don't want to have to make any decisions. So everything's done. You know what foot you're going to put in what shoe first, you know, when you're going to buckle your helmet. So you could just get in and go and yeah, part of that is definitely like knowing that your equipment is all right. Like you're in the right gear and everything is totally set and you have both of your own shoes on your bike. No one else's. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so you're just, you're totally ready to go. You know exactly what to do and you're not thinking at all about anything. You're just totally autopilot, which means you're not set up transition in the dark. Always yeah. have a flashlight. If I you feel get like there's an inside story here going on. You gotta, you guys gotta. If you put here. two shoes on your bike, you better make sure it's not your coach's shoe who is three sizes too small. <laughs> so uh, Jesse I, did indeed put in. I showed up to a race. I was actually going to race. I wound up on crutches instead. Um, it wasn't anything dumb. I just snapped my ankle on a rock. But anyways, um, Jesse. Yeah, had the rough fortune of us having identical shoes and we were in a dark car and the 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 transition area wasn't lit and it was well before sunup and he just grabbed the two shoes and put them on and didn't find out till later. I can't remember if it was your left or your right, but you essentially did everything you were supposed to do minus like the fully, is this actually the right shoe? Um, which sounds kind of silly, but I think people do that with helmets pretty frequently. People do that with water bottles, you know, or they grab the wa wrong water bottle in the morning and they grab the one with water and not their fuel. Um, and people do that sometimes with jackets and things of that nature. So that's the, like, you have your plan and it's also good to just like last minute check it, like check putting on your helmet just before you go. Um, you know, even check your seat height, make sure it didn't slip, things like that, uh, that are always pretty important. And, and same thing with the gearing. If you thought the gear, like look at it one more time to make sure, um, and, and make sure your tires are pumped, et cetera, things of that nature. So, yeah, I like to think about like, you know, just how strong race brain is, and it really has a, an effect on how much you can think appropriately in the moment. So really making sure everything is laid out ahead of time and planned and written down and ordered so that you don't do something like ride 56 miles in a shoe, two sizes, too small. It's, a, it's not a good experience. I really don't recommend it. So just, and my shoe was stretched out for the remainder of its life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got the worst end of the stick. So, yeah, I think that the, the point here is making sure you have all the details finely tuned, before you are trying to find your bike in the middle of the race. And so just so you know, uh, you also want to make sure if you're putting sunblock on, you're not actually spraying wetsuit spray all over your back and actually spraying yourself with oil. So I also have done dumb things before a race um, when I sprayed myself with wetsuit spray. So there you go. Me and Jesse are even now. 
All right. So we've done a whole another podcast on actually how to execute the bike. Is is there any additions you want to throw in here for maybe especially especially for riding in triathloning? Kind of like we had some some no triathloning swim tips. Know the course. Very much so. Know the course. Know where it's safe to eat and drink. Know where it's dangerous to eat and drink. Um, if you're nervous about various descents and corners, know where those areas are. So you don't have to, you know, have a little bit of a panic mid race. Um, and then also if there's any large climbs or big headwinds or big tailwinds, just be aware of the situation is what I would say. One of the things that's really specific to our sport is dependent on the level of athlete you are is how long you're in the water for. And when do we start that timing and nutrition? So you know, normally when we ride our bikes in training, we've had breakfast or something like that. And we ride, we know how long we have to ride before we start our nutrition, but we don't really get to practice too often, you know, where we swim for let's, you know, swim for a long period of time and then under intensity. And usually as we go through transition, heart rate's a little bit higher, that kind of thing. And a really common mistake I might see from people is, you know, the timing of when they actually start taking nutrition. So if you've been in the water a really, really long time, obviously you're due for some calories. Say you're over a two hour swimmer and an Ironman, um, not two, not two hours, but maybe an hour 35 up to two hours. <laughs> Jesse's face was priceless there, you know, different, different paces, but it just depends how long you're out there. I mean, anywhere from you know, an hour 15, an hour and a half up to two hours. If you're out there a long time, you're, you're probably going to need some nutrition pretty quickly. However, your heart rate's going to be really high when you stand up out of that water and you're running through transition and you get on your bike and things are a little unsettled. You have been, you know, in a different position for a while, maybe your stomach's you need to eat, but your stomach isn't quite ready yet. So that timing and that practice of knowing how quickly and then on the flip side, if you're really, if you're a 43 minute Ironman swimmer, which is really smoking fast, you know, if you're swimming really, really fast and, you know, you boogie on through transition at nearly max heart rate and you know, the whole first 40 K of the ride is going to be basically like a bike race to, to get going. When do you start that nutrition and practice that, um, and knowing what your body can tolerate and how quickly you can get it down. I think that's something to be practiced and and really have a good understanding of how your body's going to tolerate that before you before you get into a main race yeah i think really practicing that and then going from that practice to like having a plan that's based on your experience so you have a plan that's all set for the race like given like i was saying the course conditions given where the aid stations are and knowing when you can get bottles and when you can't get bottles having some experience grabbing bottles or planning on bringing everything with you based on your plan, but whatever that is, you have a plan, you know, where you can eat and drink, where the aid stations are and like, and where you can eat and drink for your body, how your stomach is probably going to be doing. And then where, where the course allows it. Um, as far as bottles go, from someone who's put on multiple triathlons, it is your responsibility to slow down and get the bottle. And if you're wondering why you didn't get your bottle, the person handing you the bottle is an untrained volunteer. So 
if you're going to go by going 40 K an hour, like that's on you when you miss the bottle. So I just want to throw that out there and knowing the aid station, like if it's a flat aid station, you just have to slow down if you want that bottle. And if you, if you are 50, 50 on, if you grab it, sure, maybe you can go through faster, but that's one thing I think you see a lot afterwards. Oh, I couldn't grab my bottle because they weren't good at grabbing bottles. Well, that's on you because you're having a amateur hand you the bottles. This isn't the pro tour. So. Yeah, I think um, a good rule of thumb, if people are wondering, you know, where do I fall in that? I don't have a lot of practice of when to start my nutrition. A good rule of thumb is give yourself at least five to 10 minutes, up to 15 minutes of getting settled in on your bike. Check your, check your effort, check your heart rate, check your breathing. You know, have I settled into this bike ride, maybe sip on some water. And then once you feel like, okay, I'm, I'm riding, I'm, I feel like, you know, I'm settled into this ride, my, my efforts in control of where I want it to be, then you can go ahead and start your nutrition. So if you're, you know, if you're looking for a little bit of a, a guidance, a rule of thumb, somewhere in that range is probably going to be successful. I think trying to slam nutrition in through transition while you're, while you're running through and your heart rate's really high, that might be a little bit too soon. And I've seen, you know, GI distress from that kind of thing. And then waiting too long where you're up to, you know, 30 minutes of riding into your, into your race, and you haven't had any nutrition yet, you're probably setting yourself up for a bit of a bonk. So somewhere in that window, I think, you know, 10 minutes to 20 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, no longer than 20 minutes into your ride, getting settled in, you can start your nutrition plan. Yeah. I think that's a great rule of thumb. And I, I do think that, like you said earlier, it, it is good to experiment. Um, I've actually been pretty successful, like slamming a gel in transition, which is not, not something I would recommend to anyone. Wait, unless T1? They, yeah. Oh, really? Oh yeah. Um, and so yeah, I would never just say, Oh, you should definitely do that because it can definitely throw, I would say more people would, would not enjoy that experience than, than would enjoy it. But like for me, it seemed to work out okay. And given that the bike is going to be really hard for me in the beginning, it's always good for me to get more in as soon as I can. Um, so, but yeah, like you said, you should practice. Yeah. Whatever you're going to do, you should practice. So, and if you, if you are not in a massive rush in transition, you know, like I've legit seen someone make a PBJ sandwich in transition, which was the silliest thing. I think I ever saw, but, um, like, why don't you just make the sandwich ahead of time is what I would say. So, um, and yeah, just to that note on practicing, like knowing the course and, and knowing where the aid stations are practicing bottle handups is a really good thing to do. Like get, get somebody to stand out there and just ride back and forth on your street or whatever, and, and practice grabbing a bottle while in motion, because it's not a super easy thing. And if you haven't done it for 18 months, and getting back to trying to do that at speed, you want to make sure you maybe have you know grabbed a bottle um, in practice. All right, you're on the bike, you're heading in to T2. What do you guys have to say about T2? Everybody's excited to get off their bike. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, usually by that time you're you know as you're approaching the transition, I I always recommend to people if you've been in aero bars for a long time, start to start to get up out of your aero bars and you know stretch your back out a little bit. Um, you know, get down that last little bit of nutrition that you that we've been talking about to set yourself up for the run. Slow down a little bit. Just start to get your mind into 
into the mode that you're going to run. Um, obviously, if you're racing for a place, you might be trying to stay connected to a group or something like that. So, you know, thinking ahead, if you're getting your, your feet out on your shoes, practice that skill ahead of time. What does it feel like to, what gear are you going to be in? Get your feet out of your shoes, put your feet on top of your shoes, um, stretch your back out a little bit, start thinking about your run turnover, start thinking about the transition, how you're going to get through it. Um, you know, all of those things should start happening and know where that dismount line is, right? That's a, that's a big one for people. If they're really racing fast as they come flying in and uh, maybe coming in that coming in a little too hot on the dismount line, we've all seen that, right? <laughs> coming in hot. Um, so, so definitely, you know, those things are unique to our sport and should be well planned out the days before and um, give yourself the best chance to, especially, you know, if you've been time trialing for, you know, whole Ironman or even a half Ironman in your, in your aero bars, maybe you switch through, switch through the gears a little bit, stand up, stretch a little bit while you're staying connected to your group. Basically change your position a bit. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially for those, uh, those low cadence riders might be a good opportunity to practice just spinning a little bit as you get in. Like, like Marilyn said, thinking about that run cadence, getting things moving a little faster, moving around a little bit on the bike. And then, and then again, like knowing, say, how are you going to get off the bike? Are you going to, you know, throw your leg over exactly how that works? Something you should practice and practice under some, like under a tired situation. It's I'm much more nimble after a one hour ride than I am after a four hour, really hard ride. So, so knowing how you can move and how you can't move. Cause the last thing you want to do is end up on the deck, try and get off your bike. And yeah. I, I was just going to say fast dismounts are all fun and games, but like if it's, if it's too fast, you know, it's better to be a tiny bit too slow than a tiny too fast on your dismounts. Yeah. So. Falling is never fun. So no. just keep that in mind. Yeah. You know, I've actually seen people and we talk about practicing this stuff and it all sounds so, oh yeah, they're talking about common sense, but I have seen people, you know, that in training, they carry their bottles a certain way and, you know, they practice their dismount by swinging their legs over all of this thing, all of these things. They even practice taking their shoes out every single time they finish a ride, that kind of stuff. But then race day, they go and put those rear bottles on their bike and they don't realize that you've got to swing your leg that much higher up out over those rear bottles and, you know, the, their glutes cramp on them or something at the end of a really hard ride. So make sure that everything that you're going to do race day you've done in training at some point as little and as silly as something sounds like if you put rear bottles on when you race you want to make sure you know how to do your dismount with those rear bottles on there and it's not something you throw on last minute the days before yeah and i mean and that's also as simple as like well those bottles bounce out right everything you're going to do on race day you should probably practice at at a minimum three times because you want to know what's going to go wrong, where, you know, however you carry your fuel on that bike ride, you want to, you want to know where that is. Um, and since we are moving into T2, like running chafing is an issue. And so like, that's another thing you just have to be prepared for. And so like, maybe you don't want to wear your race kit a ton, but you should probably wear it at least once. Um, just so you're aware, aware of like how it sits on your body and is that going to be an issue? Um, 
Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that might catch people off guard when they, um, you know, say we we've practiced all these things, we're really efficient from bike to run. We know what it feels like with the, you know, the we've done lots of transition workouts, so we know how to get our cadence and our posture and what it feels like to run on a bit of dead legs. Like all of those things are familiar. But the one thing that can catch people off guard that seems to not happen regularly in training, but will happen in racing from in this transition point is a numb feet. So I've had a lot of athletes where no matter how much they practice transitions in, in training, they just like the cramping I talked about from swim to bike, they're not really able to duplicate for whatever reason you hear it after, you know, first race of the season as man, I, I hopped off my bike and I started to run and my foot was really numb and I didn't even come back to life until like 5k into the run. And then I'm not saying because it's cold or frozen or anything, it's just completely numb. And so those weird things that pop up that we don't get a chance to duplicate in, in training, or maybe they're just really unique to our sport and specifically racing. You want to mentally be prepared to just handle those things as you go, you know, that's um, those and not let them frighten you or, or worry you and know that, Hey, this is, this is something that is unique to what we do. And it, it comes up and, and be, have that mindset of being able to manage it as you go. Have you guys, I mean, I almost hear that every year from at least three people is like, wow, that's never happened to me in training before, but it happens to me every single time I race. Yeah, totally. It's, um, it's actually never happened to me. So I don't, I don't get to have any real personal experience, but I've heard it from a ton of different people that, yeah, I don't know if it's something about staying in the bars for that long or, or what happens there, but, but, and it can make you feel pretty awkward when you start running. So yeah, being ready for that and, and just, you know, having faith that you, your feet are actually touching the ground and you are running, even if you can't quite feel it. Um, it involves a lot of looking down and checking. I've definitely <laughs> been there. I've been there a few times. Um, and that's one of those things. Like sometimes that's like you said, you can get the numb feet, um, from not being cold, but sometimes people, you know, they forget that maybe they're racing without socks and then they're used to wearing shoes and they have vents through them and they're not used to riding at 7am or whatever. So like, maybe you do need toe covers when you think you otherwise wouldn't need toe covers and, and that can cause something like that. So just being prepared for like literally everything, um, on the day, whether it's like the sun, the wind, the temperature and, and making sure you've got a good setup for, for all aspects of the race. Yeah. That's a, like, actually just that little uh, gold nugget that you threw in there, Elliot, is that, you know, when we train, we always train with socks. I mean, yeah. how many of us really go riding without socks? Um, but a lot of us, we race without socks, right? So do you yeah. even know what your shoes feel like with, with no socks? And if you don't know where the hot spots are on your toes and, and all of that socks versus no socks, or even how they fit, I mean, maybe with a little sock that shoe fits really snug. And then with a wet sockless foot, it's sloppy as can be, and you end up having problems out there. So, you know, like you're, like you keep saying, practicing those things and knowing it is going to set you up for more success. And, and just being aware if you haven't done that and you start to run into problems, just not to let it panic you, but being aware of the differences. Oh, I'm riding in wet feet without socks today. I haven't done that yet this year. That's why this is happening and process that and handle it appropriately. And, and the same thing goes for like, you hear I, like social media can be rough where people are like, so-and-so was out riding in their kit. Well, guess what? They were probably getting properly prepared for their race. 
So a lot of chamois in kits are different sizes than chamois in bike shorts. And that can change how your bike rides. And, you know, it might only be a millimeter or two millimeters, but if you need to change that, you need to be aware of that. Um, and you also need, you know, like I said earlier, you need to know if, if the kit like rubs in a weird way, or does it like, does it feel amazing? It's not an issue. That's great. Um, but then at least, you know, so essentially this whole podcast is like, it's all a fact finding mission about the course and then making sure you're well prepared for literally every last thing in the course. Um, is yeah, kind of what I would sum I think, it up as. Yeah. And it's unique to triathlon in that mm -hmm. we tend to practice swim, bike, run. We even practice perhaps like bike to run transitions and, and we get ourselves as prepared as possible. But then there's all these little unknowns that we're, we're just reminding people of, or even just making people aware of that, Hey, this is kind of unique to our sport and, um, you know, practicing it before or just being aware of it, you're going to handle it better. And, and, you know, this isn't something we, we do every day. You know, we don't, we go out for bike rides. We do specific track sessions. We do our swims at the pool and then go ride after breakfast. Like we do pieces of this all the time, but then there's these little pieces of the puzzle that are so unique to our sport. I think it's worth, you know, remembering, practicing and talking about before the, before people get back out there on the courses. And I, I do think as you get into the run, um, one of the most important things that you don't really necessarily notice until race day, unless you seek out the situation is, and this is particularly for longer races, but it does happen in shorter races as well. What state is your stomach in? And like, what did that mean for the food you ate? You know, you were talking about eating on the bike, but then like, what does that mean for your run specifically? Are you going to have to stop and go to the bathroom multiple times? Like is Imodium a part of your race plan? Um, you know, or do you have to change what you're eating? And that's something that like, as you get closer to race day, you kind of need to have that sussed out. But if you're doing an Ironman, like it's really hard to get, you know, eight hours into a training session to find that out. So you kind of need to, you know, set as much up as you can to know if you're going to be in a good situation or not, and then kind of have some contingency plans. If, you know, for me, it's probably like one out of five or one out of six of my athletes. That's a big problem. And, and when that's a problem, it's a massive problem. And then you really need to solve it. Um, and so just checking to see if that is a problem in your training ahead of time. Yeah. And, you know, Ironman's a really unique event in that, you know, most, most events and most sports we get to, we get to practice them and rehearse them. You know, if you look at 1500 meter runners on the track or even, you know, 400 meter, 400 in the pool or, you know, whatever it is, these events, even if you're, you know, a, a bike racer, um, the TTs and stuff, you get to rehearse them multiple times in training and become really aware of these things. One thing that's unique about Ironman is we really don't get to practice. You're not going to go practice a 10 Ironman. hour you're not going to go practice Ironman. You're not going to do that multiple times before you go race an Ironman. So we prepare the best we can and we become aware of all of these things that could happen. But remember, you know, the foundations of Ironman's really about an, a management day and, and being able to be adaptable and, and really understanding your body well and knowing how to adapt and change as you go and, and those kinds of things, because we really don't get to practice it. And that's why the more you do, the better you get. But even people I know that have done, you know, 35, 40, 50 Ironmans, every single one of them is different. They're like, this nutrition plan worked for 18 of my Ironmans. And then all of a sudden it didn't work anymore and they had to completely change it. So, you know, it's not always, none of them are exactly the same depending on 
uh, you know, the courses, conditions, and even just as your body reacts to that specific day. So I think that's worth, as people head into Ironmans this year, worth remembering as well. Awesome. I think that was really well said. Yeah, I think it is super important, even though I'm a big fan of the mid-ride donut, to, to spend a few longer hard rides, really practicing with that race fuel and seeing how you react and knowing that you might not actually react that way on race day. So having a plan B or C so that, you know, you can make sure you get in the hydration and the nutrition you need to, to make it through the day successfully. It's a huge part of the sport. Yeah. Triathloning. <laughs> yeah. Start to finish line. I like how you said that. At the yeah, start. yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, when people ask you, you know, swim, bike, run, it's, uh, don't be afraid to stand up and say, I do triathlon and that's a sport in itself. And there's all these unique parts of our sport that make it special, make it fun, make it more challenging. And, and you want to take the time to not just get too fixated on each of the three individual sports, but make sure that you've got a really good practice plan on, on putting it all together. So it's because it's, there really is a gun goes off and then the fastest person to the finish line. So it's who does all of that together. The fastest I've seen people lose Kona spots in transition. So, you know, it's getting Ooh. competitive at that top end. And, you know, we know if I've seen people lose, you know, in 10 seconds in a triathlon, their only opportunity to go to Hawaii. And so, you know, don't, don't be that guy. I want to <laughs> shout out 2000. I think this was 2002, uh, university of Montana. So I'm a freshman and we beat university. We didn't win nationals. We got second at nationals. So it's six people all combined and we beat university of Wisconsin for second. They got third by, you know, like one minute over six people. So like 10 seconds a person, but to a person, we out transitioned them by like a minute and a half each person. So like, I was like, we're worse at swimming, biking and running, but we're better at triathlon. And like, yeah. we were so stoked afterwards. It was like, yeah, cause we're a triathlon team. We're not a swim bike run team. We're a triathlon team. I love it that. Really it does awesome. matter, you know? So. Awesome. I think that was a, a great note to end it on. Thanks guys. Thanks. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> fun conversation. Yeah. That was good. Start to finish line. I like that. I'm going to steal it from you. Awesome. Cheers. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye.